Hi, my name is Lauren May, and I'm part of the teaching team here at Vineyard Church of Baton Rouge. And I'm going to keep going with stories of renewal for this week. And today I'm going to be talking about the story of Jonathan and David and how their friendship turned typical kingship upside down and really illustrates the power of redemption. So basically, we're just going to go through the story. And I want us to think about, you know, what we can learn, what, how we can see renewal come through this story. So uh, the story starts back in Judges, or well, in First Samuel, but um, begins in the time of Judges. So Israel has been ruled by or led by these judges, uh, but they see the nations around them and they want to be like the nations around them. And so they ask the prophet at the time, the spiritual leader at the time, to find them a king. They want to be like the nations around them and have their own king. And Samuel tells them, this is not a good idea. God tells them, I have something else for you. But they keep asking. And so God relents and he says, okay, I'll give you a king. And he finds him a great king. His name's Saul. He is a man's man. He is a great leader. And things are looking up in Israel. He has incredible success. Uh, he's so excited about uh, what he's doing, but things start to turn. Saul goes against Samuel. He uh, doesn't follow Samuel's direct directions. And, and Samuel says, this is a problem. But then immediately after, we see Saul's heir. We see Jonathan. We meet, we meet his son. And uh, Jonathan pulls off this heroic attack, which leads to a huge victory for Israel. And Jonathan becomes a hero of the people. And then Saul disobeys again. And this is kind of the last straw. He is utterly rejected as king. He still holds the title, but he no longer moves with God's anointing in his life. And then David shows up. This happens immediately after in the narrative. And so David becomes a part of Saul's court and David, or I'm sorry, Saul loves him. He says, the Bible literally says he loved him greatly. And uh, then we come to the moment, which is arguably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. David faces off against Goliath and becomes the hero of the Hebrew people. So I've just taken you through this sequence of events and we've seen uh, Saul's disobedience. We've seen a heroic son. Then we've seen Saul's uh, disobedience and rejection. And then David anointed becoming uh, the hero. And whenever you see sequence in biblical narrative, it's important that we take note of it. It's done on purpose. And what we're seeing here is this structure, uh, this repeated structure that puts Jonathan and David in contrast with each other. Okay because of the structure, right? So you have rejection number one, Jonathan, rejection number two, David. And so the narrative fo forces us to think, what's gonna happen with these two? Like these two young, equally heroic men, one should be the heir to the king, but one with the anointing. And so the, there's a rivalry there. But then the narrative turns upside down because Jonathan and David meet. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel 18 verses 1 through 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. 
And Jonathan made it a solvent pact with David, because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. So I don't know what it was that made them friends. The Bible doesn't say, but uh, they're definitely friends now. And it really should be particularly surprising since David has essentially taken Jonathan's place as the military hero. And what we see is rather than Jonathan getting jealous, he's content to become less as David becomes more. The mighty son in the narrative shifts to the son who God has chosen. Uh, this is really highlighted. Their friendship is really highlighted in this exchange of clothing, right? Or it's Jonathan giving his clothing to David. And there's different ideas behind it because we don't know why, but we get to meditate on why it might be. You know, some people have said it's because David uh, was a farmer. And so as a hero, he needed the clothing of... He needed the clothing of a prince, princely clothing in this huge moment. So Jonathan is being helping him out as a friend and giving him that. And then others have pointed to um, just some uh, like traditional understandings of clothing in, in Eastern cultures, uh, in ancient Eastern cultures, where the clothing um, conferred part of the person onto whoever was wearing it. So particularly this royal princely clothing, part of that princely um, essence would be transferred to David when he wore that clothing. And so maybe this is a symbolic play on that, that this, uh, that this anointing has been passed off to David in this way. But regardless, what we're seeing is that Jonathan had the humility to give out of an abundance of love rather than withholding out of a sense of jealousy. And if you know the story of Saul, Jonathan, and David, you know the contrast of Saul and Jonathan's response to David is stark. And I think in them, we see the potential very best reaction and very worst reaction we can have when things don't go the way that we would expect. Are we threatened by the success of others or encouraged even when good for others may be to our own loss and detriment? And so, yeah, if you know the story, what happens is Saul's relationship completely sours with David to the point where David starts to fear for his life. And Jonathan promises to warn David if it ever gets bad enough where his father is planning on harming him. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 3 through 15, it says this, it says, but Jonathan says this, if he is angry and wants to you killed, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So we see Jonathan following behind God's will. You hear it, he says, may the Lord be with you as he used, as he used to be with my father. Jonathan recognizes what happ what's happening. He faces the situation with eyes open and chooses to love his friend and do what's right, even to his own detriment. So 
So Saul figures out what's going on and insults his son as long with his mother, Jonathan's mother, in rather colorful Hebrew. Um, I'm going to give you a less colorful translation, but it's in verses 30 through uh, 31. It says, do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. So even with when what Jonathan puts on the line is called out, um, what, you know, the structure of the narrative has been pointing to us, what should be in the back of our minds the whole time that David is taking Jonathan's place, he still remains loyal to David and warns him to run. And they leave each other with a promise. In verse 42, at last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left and Jonathan returned to the town. You know, I got to be honest, like I am just uh, in awe of Jonathan's humility. Jonathan has every right by the standards of the law and the standards of kingship and the standards of expectation to be upset by David's anointing. But instead, like we said, he, he chooses to accept what God is doing and get on board I think we're used to seeing narratives of failure when people don't do this. So I think we get to, we should take note of this astounding success that we see. So let me give you, I'm, so since we've been talking about narrative structures, I'm going to change the structure of the sermon a little bit. And I'm going to give you the, uh, your first practical tip now, because I, I think it, it, it's important to pause and, and think about how powerful what Jonathan is, is doing. So, here, so here's your practical tip. So Jonathan's response defies explanation or human imagination, modeling the radical life and love that Christ calls us to when we choose his will and plan and way over what seems right to us. Watch for the places where God is turning the order of things upside down and choose to trust God and love people even when things don't make sense. I've been mulling over this story for a few weeks. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great story and we're only in the middle of it, right? We've just uh, found out that Jonathan and David are friends and uh, we're starting to see this, this transition of power. And uh, I was ready to go on Monday with this message and then Wednesday happened and we've watched our country, which has experienced peaceful transitions of power, experience an incredibly uh, divisive and incredibly uh, violent one then I'm recording Thursday yesterday. And I just thought it would be disingenuous not to be honest with you about how I'm feeling and honestly where my mind has started to go with this text that, um, that I've been learning about and sitting with the Lord about. I think I, um, I'm angry. Uh, I'm frustrated with what's happening right now. And yeah, I don't know what the right answer is. I don't have the perfect words to bring it all together. And, and I think that's because I started doing what a lot of people tend to do with biblical stories. And what we tend to do is we tend to say, okay, this story 
uh, is symbolic of what's happening right now. And there's absolutely parallels, right? So this, we're in a transition of power. And, but, but the, the dangerous reading of the text is to say, since this is a transition of power from Saul to David, and we're experiencing a, a violent transition of power from President Trump to President-elect Biden, that those two men are the same. So uh, Saul is Trump and uh, David is Biden. And so what we're seeing is just this kind of, uh, this is what happens when you go from the, the one guy to the other guy or the bad guy to the good guy. And, and so, so I'll be honest, like that was my like, oh, wow, look at that. But, and, but I know a lot of you are listening and, and you know, a lot of people felt really differently. A lot of Christians felt really differently about this. They, they, they definitely didn't see Biden as, as God's anointed. Um, and, and so, but both of those readings are, 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 are deeply flawed. So my reading there was, was deeply flawed because here's the thing, we don't have uh, anointed kings anymore. Trump is not an anointed king and Biden will not be either. And that's because the age of anointed kings is over. And that age was broken by Jesus. Jesus is our anointed king. And, um, and, and the other thing I think we miss when we decide to uh, get caught up in who's who in these biblical stories is when we read, um, we're called to figure out, I'm called to figure out what is God telling me to do? Not what is he telling Trump to do, not what is he telling Biden to do, not what he's telling Congress to do, not what he's telling people I disagree with on Facebook to do. Like, he's telling me what to do. Like, he's telling his children what to do. And so, you know, as I read on, I, I know it's, it's really easy to get caught up in, uh, you know, what's, this, what's the symbolism here? Um, you know, what's, what's the political answer here? Because we really want, I really want a political answer. I really want to know, like God is saying, um, you know, this is right and this is wrong. But I am called to trust God's will, to follow after him, um, and to love others. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, I'll be honest, I've, I've redone this like 10 times, um, because I don't want to get it wrong and I, uh, I don't want to get overly political. I, I don't want to, to, to hurt people. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just, but, but I, but I want to be honest because I, I know what's going through our brains right now and to just ignore it, I think would be again, disingenuous. Um, so yeah, let's like, let's have open hearts. Um, let's be willing to make some mistakes in this moment. Let's be willing to be wrong in this moment. Um, and let's try to hear what God is saying to us. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to keep going with the story. Um, so Saul begins to lose popularity, right? So, okay, so I don't know. Uh, it's been so many takes that I've done it, but again, we, Jonathan and David are, are friends and um, David has been anointed. Jonathan is willingly and humbly given up that role of heir and passed it on to David. Um, but Saul has forced David basically to flee. 
So, uh, so Saul begins to become less and less popular and David begins to become more and more popular and, uh, he begins losing battles. Eventually Saul and both Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle at the hands of an enemy army. And so we are thrown into political turmoil again. Uh, the leaders and the people just kind of, kind of, kind of, stumble along, right? David becomes the king of Judah, but then this splinter group emerges and they appoint another of Saul's son as the king over Israel. So David has fiercely loyal followers. And so David's followers attempt to, uh, to destroy the splinter group. And eventually they do. So the, the, one of the main rebel leaders is killed along with Saul's son who is anointed, uh, appointed king of Israel. He's murdered. And in the middle of this political narrative, there's this detail about John, Jonathan's family. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Paul, or sorry, Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. Okay, so uh, earlier we talked about the importance of sequence and biblical narrative. So I don't know if you guys caught it, but uh, this happened, this little story happened after Saul and Jonathan had been killed, but it doesn't appear in the narrative until after Saul's son, Saul's rebellious son is murdered. Okay, so this story should happen at the end of 1 Samuel, but it happens a little bit into the beginning of 2 Samuel. So that placement should really perk our ears up. We should pay attention to that placement and meditate on what we should be thinking in this moment. Um, and, and to me, kind of what, what I've reflected on is that um, you're hearing the story of Saul's line basically being demolished. And so you're thinking about, okay, here's Mephibosheth, um, who is part of Saul's line, who has escaped in fear, and is, but is still, is still living, right? He, um, he has a disability, um, he has to be in hiding, but he is a potential rival to David. And we've just heard about this other rival that was just killed. So we, we can think, okay, is Mephibosheth going to be this hidden usurper? Is he gonna be raised up to attempt vengeance? But we also know what has happened earlier in the story where Jonathan and David have made a promise to each other to have peace between their families. And then we've also seen David throughout the story. So if you know about David, you know that he didn't want to overthrow Saul right away. He wanted Saul, his, he knew Saul was the anointed king, even if it was in title only, and respected that title until Saul's death. And when his followers went after these rebels, when they murdered the king of Israel, David was furious. So Narrative structure tells us Mephibosheth is the hidden usurper, but everything else we're hearing is saying, maybe there's something more going on here. So David, he's anointed king over Israel. Uh, you know, he, he puts his house in order, his reign is established. You know, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to, to, into Israel. He, he, has, he has incredible victories, but then Mephibosheth is still in the background. 
And so then we hear 2 Samuel um, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to skip a little bit in the passage if you're reading directly, um, but I want you guys to get the gist of the story. So it says, One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. King then, the king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. His name was Mephibosheth, and he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intended to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Okay, so two big things I want to point out. Um, one, um, how radical this is, and, and two, um, how comforting this is. So first, yeah, uh, we, hear, we hear the answer to the question that we've been meditating on, right? So for the sake of Jonathan, because of Jonathan's friendship, it was only possible because of Jonathan's humility, there's peace. Um, and we see this radical response that David has, not just peace, not just like, oh, it's okay, You're, you can carry on Mephibosheth, um, but David almost uh, sets resets Mephibosheth up. You know, Saul's servants are restored to him, so he has a household with servants, and the family line can continue, right? There's this very specific detail that Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, so the dynasty, even though it's not the kingship anymore, can continue through Mephibosheth. And then what is it that's done that? What has allowed this to happen? The promise between Jonathan and David bears its fruit in the life of Mephibosheth. His life is renewed. His life is changed because Jonathan and David chose humility and love over rivalry and jealousy. And that, that is what turned cultural expectations upside down. And what we see here is that God will do what he wants to do, even with an institution like kingship. Even where every force of culture is saying one thing, God is going to make happen what he wants to happen. Bringing peace, bringing reconciliation to those who are willing to accept and follow his will. And there's a really, another really beautiful piece that's happening here. You know, you notice that Mephibosheth's disability is mentioned twice in this story. In the very beginning, uh, the servant calls it out. And then at the very end, almost for no reason, right? It says, and Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regu regularly at the king's table. Details matter in stories. There's not a ton of them all the time. So when they show up, they should stand out. And I think what's being emphasized here is that uh, someone who normally wouldn't be invited to the table is being invited to the table here. 
you know, people with disabilities still struggle with stigma uh, even today. And it was even greater in this time. So the fact that David chooses the non-traditional to be in his, in his circle, to be at his table, should reflect God's love to us too. Because God is a God who brings the least expected to the table as well. God gives a place to those who don't seem to belong. And he, I think he loves doing it too, especially when it defies the expectations of society. Here we see the disabled enemy with his own family line, the perfect target for David to eliminate, brought in. And this theme sounds off again and again in the Bible, that those who shouldn't belong or don't belong find a place in the presence of God. Um, in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah prophesies a few hundred years after David, um, he, God is still talking about how much he cares for those that society would reject. So in Isaiah 56, God directly addresses two groups of people. One is the foreigner, right? And, and if, if you are a reader of the Bible, you shouldn't be surprised to hear the foreigner um, in God's heart. So a lot of the story is the contrast of Israel and the nations around that. that that's the whole story that we just talked about, right? Um, but the foreigner wasn't necessarily accepted into society, um, especially within the religious rites of the temple, right? The foreigner was kept outside the inner courts. Um, so, so I want you to keep that in mind as we read Isaiah 56. And then the other group of people were eunuchs. Okay, if you don't know what a eunuch is, um, you can Google that. Um, but basically a eunuch was unable to establish a family line. And at, at this time, and still even today, establishing a family, um, leaving a legacy, uh, building the next generation, it's a, it's a super important job. There's a lot of pressure put in society on that. Uh, you know, we say we start a family when we have kids. Um, so listen to what God communicates to, to the eunuch through Isaiah. So Isaiah 56 says, thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Wow. God is a God who gives exactly what we lack. The foreigner, a place at the altar. The childless, a legacy. 
and the disinherited and inheritance. So what do you lack? And are you willing to let God say to you, draw near to me, listen to my voice, and I will satisfy that which you feel you lack? You know, maybe you feel like, um, you know, you haven't even been invited to the table, right? So, but God, our God is a God of the isolated and lonely. And his promises in Isaiah draw in those that society rejected, just like David brought Mephibosheth to the table. Um, in Luke 14, there's a story of a guy who's hosting a banquet and no one shows up. No one comes to the party. So he tells his friends uh, to call in anyone they can find. He says, okay, those who are supposed to be at the table aren't there. So you find people on the streets by the wayside and bring them in. And you know what? All of them came. And so I'd encourage you, accept that invitation. Come to the table because God wants you there. And if you're sitting at the table and you feel like you're there, you're there alone, let's start inviting some people in. You know, in the upside down kingdom, the son of the king is willing to give, give up his preference and his priority to serve God's will. And that choice allowed his son who lost his place and who had no place in society to be welcome to the table. Let's talk about the last practical tip. You know, that love, Jonathan's love, was one lens that David saw the world through, and their promise and friendship created room at the table for the least likely. So here's what I'd encourage you to do. Consider who is currently at your table. How can you invite the least likely into the circle of those you honor and love?